Yo, episode number 43, and we are live from the IM Studios in the heart of Los Angeles. But before we get into it today, I want you to do two things. Number one, hit the follow and subscribe button so you can get alerted when the new episodes drop. And number two, go right now, scroll down, give me that five-star rating and leave a review. This is very, very, very important. It's important to me, to the algorithm, to our exposure. I want this show to keep growing and I want to be able to keep making new episodes forever. So those ratings, those reviews really help. And hopefully you're here because you love the podcast. So we want to get more reach and distribution and keep growing. So thank you very much. Now, I want to jump into the rundown of this episode because the calendar hit December and this is holiday season, the season of wonder, or should I say the season of wonders? I mean, this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, whether you love or hate the holidays. I happen to love them, but Los Angeles is a very um, unique place to celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Or nothing at all, because frankly, it's a strange place to even have winter. And that's why all year, especially in this season, the season of wonders, we look into the seven wonders of Los Angeles. I'm talking about the consummate symbols of LA. Not talking the Hollywood sign or Rodeo Drive, which are fine in their own right. I've talked about both of those. But places that genuinely inspire wonder. Places with heart, with soul that represent the Los Angeles culture. And listen, there are about 100 places that could have made this list, so this was very difficult for me to put together. But I think we did a pretty good job. So let this list of wonders be your guide for the holidays and beyond. Your what to do in LA this week and every week. And get this, they're all free. Yeah. So take your friends, take your family, take your out-of-town guests. Shoot, go by yourself and enjoy the seven wonders of Los Angeles. And before I forget, this episode is brought to you by McKenna Cars. McKennaCars.com. With nine dealerships in L.A. and Orange County, all roads lead to McKenna. That's McKennaCars.com. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. So, as always, we start with something that happened in L.A. this week. The holidays are happening. Hanukkah actually started. And the menorahs are lit, emblazoned in the historic Fairfax district. Farmer's Market, bells and tinsel all around. The Beverly Center is awash in the sounds of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. And the Black in the Valley Kwanzaa Marketplace is going on in Northridge. This is the holiday time. So it's time to celebrate, be thankful, and you know what? This is my favorite time of the year. It really is. I look forward to it every year. I get to celebrate both Hanukkah and Christmas, so I'm, I'm kind of spoiled in that, that regard. But what better way to celebrate than to acknowledge what really makes Los Angeles wonderful? It's wonders! So, with all due respect to some wonders that barely miss the cut, I'm talking about Watts Towers, King Taco Original Truck, the Port of L.A., the original Tommy's Building, the LAX theme building, the oldest palm tree in L.A. Those did not make the cut for the seven wonders. So let's get into exactly what did. Okay, number one, 
on my seven wonders of LA is the four level interchange. That's right. The stack. That beautiful ribbon of freeway at the junction of the 101 and the 110. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A freeway. Yo, if you're driving over there, and honestly, I'm envisioning just going up or going down the, the 110, and you're rolling up on that thing, and oh my goodness, this is a feat of modern architecture, of engineering, and it is beautiful. Like, honestly, I always talk about driving around Los Angeles and we have so much natural beauty and this is the epitome of man-made and maybe what freeways represent, our traffic, all this stuff. But this is a stunning feat and it has style. It has panache. And guess what? This was the world's first stacked interchange. They all used to be clover leaves prior to that. And what is a stack? It's a multi-tiered structure that separates traffic heading in each direction in dedicated lanes. You drive on that thing, you're amazed. You drive under that thing. I honestly, I probably shouldn't say this. I try to take pictures while I'm driving just to capture LA. I, I want to take the pictures of the stack. And there are some beautiful photos out there. But man, don't, don't do it while you're driving. But it's something that honestly, my mouth is... My chin is on the floor when I'm driving through and around this thing. And it's the only interchange to be certified as a civil engineering landmark by the Society of Civil Engineers. This is a big deal. And you know how I do. I got to give a little history of it. So the plans for this interchange were first unveiled in 1944. And construction was going to cost a modest $5.5 million in today's terms, which was a lot back then. That was $45.7 million back then. And it was the most expensive half mile of highway ever built at the time. So that, that'll put it in perspective, right? And work finished by 1949, but it was unused for about mm, four years afterwards. Because construction crews were still building the connecting Hollywood, Harbor, Santa Ana freeways. And it opened in successive stages. But it wasn't until September 22nd, 1953, that motorists could drive on all 22 of its lanes and over all seven of its bridges. I mean, think about that. 22 lanes and seven bridges right in this interchange. This is a true wonder. And now... The four level, because it's four levels, also known as the stack. And again, it's multi-tiered structure. The bottom level has curved lanes for changing from the 110 to 101. One level above is the main trunk of the 110, which is the Arroyo Seco, the first freeway in Los Angeles. That's the Arroyo Seco north of the interchange and the Harbor Freeway south. The third level are what are called arcing flyover ramps. Just think about that, arcing flyover ramps. That was the future, especially 70 years ago. And those carry traffic from the 101 to the 110. And then the fourth and top level is the main artery of the 101 freeway, which is the Hollywood Freeway to the west, the Santa Ana Freeway to the east. And now this really is a symbol of Los Angeles and it's a symbol of LA's post-World War II development. I mean, this thing is on postcards. This, as the city grew and really boomed into a metropolis, the four-level interchange facilitated that. And it facilitated that transformation from Los Angeles being a city 
to being a metropolis. And you know what else it did? It cemented Los Angeles as the world capital for car culture. And how important is that in this city? This is probably, no, this is the epicenter of car culture. I mean, we're talking a half a million vehicles per day on the stack, on the four level. And now technically it's called the Bill Keen Memorial Interchange because he was the late KNX traffic guy and, and he was kind of a pioneer in the space. So kudos to him. But we still call it the four level and we call it the stack and we call it a wonder of Los Angeles. So what is the second wonder of Los Angeles? This one is very personal to me. And I don't think this is going to be on a lot of people's lists until they see it. Because this thing is underrated, underappreciated, and needs to be exposed more. I've done an Elliot a Minute episode on it, but man. Wonder number two in Los Angeles, the Great Wall of Los Angeles. What? Where is the Great Wall of Los Angeles? I'll tell you where it is. The Great Wall of Los Angeles is at 12900 Oxnard in Valley Glen. Where is that? Well, it's right by Valley College. Cross Street is cold water. And it's so easy to miss because this wall, this great wall, is a painted wall on the west side of the Tahunga Wash. It's more than half a mile long. And get this. It's one of the three longest murals in the world. This thing is awe-inspiring, the scale of it. And it's not just the size that makes it outlandishly gorgeous and meaningful. But it's known as one of the most respected and largest monuments to interracial harmony in the United States, in the world. It was dreamt up by Judith Baca, also known as Judy Baca, of a group called Spark, Social and Public Art Resource Center. It was their first public art project, and it was dreamt up in the 1970s. So what it really is, <clears throat> through their verbiage, it's a landmark pictorial representation of the history of ethnic people of California from prehistoric times to modern times. Now, it was began in 1974 and completed over the uh, work of five summers. And why only summers? This is what's really cool too and what makes this a true wonder for me. It was done by 400 youth from diverse social and economic backgrounds working with artists, oral historians, ethnologists, scholars, and hundreds of community members. This was a true representation of Los Angeles completed by people who were a true representation of Los Angeles. Now, if you look at it, it's 13 feet high. It's from the bottom of the wash to the top of the wash. And again, over a half a mile long. And now Judy Baca, she was a professor of Chicano studies at UCLA. And she dreamt up this beautification project. And with the approval of the Army Corps of Engineers, they were able to give this makeover to that area of the Tahunga Wash appropriate because it was initially considered that area of the Tahunga Wash a scar where the L.A. River once ran. So what better than to paint over a scar with something beautiful? I mean, those of you that have tattoos, 
maybe covering something up, understand this. And then those tattoo sleeves, whatever it is, can turn into beautiful works of art. Well, this, I just thought, is this is a sleeve, a tattoo sleeve on the city of Los Angeles, a beautiful one. And it's arranged in panels with compositions that blend into each other. It's six sections with 86 different segments going back to 20,000 B.C., in Los Angeles, and you look at this thing. This is like the La Brea tar pits come to life. You got the the uh, um, saber tooth tigers. You're going back to the indigenous people. This is all throughout the the frontier, Los Angeles suffrage, civil rights. I mean, again, this covers LA history. And yo, I spend a good hour there every few months because. I do live fairly close by, so it is easier. But there's like a nice little park bench area that you can walk around. And again, every time I'm there, you see something different. You see different details. And it just really is a great representation of L.A. And especially of the underrepresented L.A. So they do refurbish it. They repaint it, I think, every few years. I know they did it recently. They added solar lights. They added benches to pedestrian walks, and it's completely refurbished. It's beautiful. Go see it. Again, 12900 Oxnard Street in Valley Glen, and it's free. It really is a history lesson, and it's one of the longest murals in the world, and it's just beautiful. A true wonder of Los Angeles. Next up. <laughs> Again, hey, look at this. Back to back in the valley. Well, this is leaving the valley. And this is, to me, an undeniable wonder of Los Angeles. I'm talking about the L.A. Aqueduct, which, by the way, is formerly known as the Cascades, the L.A. Aqueduct at the Cascades. What this is, you see it on the five when you're leaving uh, leaving the valley, leaving L.A. It, as a kid, I thought it was a water slide. I mean, let's be honest. That's what it looks like. But man, this is talk about awe-inspiring, especially when you realize what it represents, okay? This is how water came to Los Angeles. The LA River has enough of a natural water flow for 100,000 people. That's a nice-sized town, but it's not a city, and it's definitely not enough water for a metropolis. So William Mulholland, mm, somewhat polarizing figure, I dressed as him as Halloween for Halloween, but uh, he's also responsible for, for a pretty darn bad disaster. But perhaps more than any single man person in Los Angeles history, he's responsible for the growth of the city. And it's because of the L.A. aqueduct that flows right there into Silmar. And you can go right up to this thing. You can drive by it on the 5 and just marvel at it. Um, and you can see it from the 405 as the 405 turns into the 5. But the thing is, there's a little parking space, parking area, right off of Foothill. Okay, I think it's Foothill, like, just east of Balboa, way the heck up there. But they got room for, like, three cars. It's it's not supposed to be a tourist place. Don't go flooding this place all at once, no pun intended. Um, but you could go park up there and just look at it and see it, when, especially when it's flowing. Like, this is a pipeline of water into the San Fernando Valley, into Los Angeles, that increased the city's capacity, potential capacity, from 100,000 people to the more than 10 million people that we have today. And that thing 
when William Mulholland, by the way, when he pulled the, the lever to get the water flowing, I'm going to tell you the story, but I just love this. His understated sense, he said, there it is, take it. And boy, did we ever take it. I mean, again, there's a other side to the coin, the people of the Owens River Valley where we got our water. You know, they, they paid him for land. It was a syndicate. These are the water wars. But we're celebrating Los Angeles. And without the aqueduct, we do not have the water and we don't have the city. So I'm, I'm going to tell you this little story of how this came to be. In March of 1905, Mulholland recommended to the Board of Water Commissioners that, well, the only viable source of water for the city's fast-growing population was way the heck out in the Owens Valley, 233 miles away. So the city of L.A. submitted an application for rights of way across federal lands for the purpose of constructing an aqueduct from the Owens Valley, the Owens River, to Los Angeles. And again, that involved buying property, eminent domain, people from the L.A. syndicate, Involved with Sherman, Eaton, uh, Otis, Chandler, Mulholland. Used different methods to buy the property that had the water rights. And, you know, the city and state enforced some of that. And, and thus began the building of the aqueduct. And the most difficult part was the tunneling. There was 142 tunnels totaling 43 miles in length. And remember, this is 1906. wasn't really cars. There definitely weren't trucks. There were a lot of mules and horses and just digging whole horses need to be dug. I mean, holes need to be dug for five years to construct this aqueduct and mules would haul materials and they would set up makeshift housing and check this out. It was going to be a $25 million investment, which in today's terms, well, in today's terms, it's almost a billion dollars, which actually doesn't seem like that much for a significant, talk about an engineering and architectural marvel, accomplishment of that magnitude. And again, the roads, there were no roads that were good enough for cars at the time because the cars were new. And they, they, so this was all by horse and by hand. And it begins at a place called Black Rock Springs, which is up there in the Owens Valley. And it diverts the Owens River into a canal. 233 miles long with the aqueduct right to the gates of the Cascades and Silmar. And get this, William Mulholland, who was a self-taught engineer, figured out a way to do this using gravity and gravity alone, which moves the water for 233 miles. And that water also generates electricity, which actually makes it cost efficient to operate. So when I say that this aqueduct had a significant impact of the growth of L.A. and why this is a true wonder, check this out. Between 1909 and 1928, the city of L.A. grew from 61 square miles to 440 square miles, and the population grew from 100,000 to a million. And the city's charter was worded as such that the city of L.A. could not sell or provide surplus water to any area outside of the city, and those areas then relied on wells and creeks. And when they dried up, the city annexed those areas. So that's, talk about the story, the concurrent growth of the city through its water, through its property, all because of the aqueduct. Now, again, 
I got to talk about the Owens Valley was essentially decimated. It was a viable farming community, great ecosystem, and that San Fernando syndicate basically destroyed it. And it led to an outbreak of violence known as the Water Wars. And I am indeed going to get into the Water Wars in a future episode. But right now, we're just celebrating the L.A. Aqueduct, which was declared a California historical monument on July 28th, 1958. So, yeah, that is a wonder of Los Angeles. And go see it. The closer you are, the more amazing it is. You will be in awe. Next up is one of my absolute favorite stories about Los Angeles. Now, this is interesting because there's not a singular wonder for this one. But this is wondrous. And you can see the oil derricks on La Cienega. You drive by that. La Cienega, by the way, which is like a freeway because it was supposed to be a freeway. That's a different story. But lining La Cienega, you see these oil wells and oil derricks that are still pumping active oil wells in the middle of Los Angeles. What the heck? How are we still pumping oil here in 2023? Well, this is what makes this one of LA's true wonders. Turns out, Los Angeles is the largest urban oil field in the United States, and it's still pumping out over 100,000 barrels a day. Los Angeles has over 20,000 oil wells, and 30% of the city's residents live within a mile of an active oil well. And that's what I'm saying. La Cienega is where, to me, the most visually breathtaking part of this wonder is, but Chances are you live near an oil well. I mean, some of these are disguised. They're in Beverly Hills. They're in Venice. I mean, we are pumping oil everywhere, right? And get this, get this. Los Angeles, and I've mentioned this before, but it is worth mentioning over and over, was the oil capital of the world in the early 20th century. Ever since oil was discovered by Edward Doheny in 1892, well, LA went from being a sleepy rural town to the richest city in the nation. Los Angeles was an oil town. And again, you may have seen the Doheny story in uh, There Will Be Blood. It's based on Doheny. But once he struck oil, that sparked a population boom. Workers in the existing oil industry, Oklahoma and Texas, made the journey west. They People who migrate from other parts of California, they followed the oil. And the thing about LA oil is it's special. It's close to the surface and easy to extract. And now let's go back to those other wonders, especially number one with the interchange as the cars and the trucks were becoming more and more commonplace. Well, guess what? Those cars and vehicles needed oil. And now we have this incredible weather. We have these vehicles. We have a port. We're talking about exponential expansion in Los Angeles due to the oil. And in fact, L.A. was so oil crazy that in 1922, there was a new community near Long Beach called Petroleum Gardens. And Long Beach, specifically Signal Hill, they were full of oil. Some of these images are nuts. You see these oil wells, hundreds of oil wells interspersed with homes, schools, even on the beach. Oil wells are 
kind of responsible for, for the downfall, the early downfall of Venice, which is recovered. But this was an oil-crazy town. And on La Sienica, you could just see these oil wells in their full glory. I mean, again, I want to reinforce. In 1930, Los Angeles was Saudi Arabia. It was producing nearly one quarter of the world's oil. And it wasn't just the oil that brought the jobs. People needed pumps. They needed pipes. They needed tanks. They needed drilling rigs. They needed trucks. This was the basis of the LA industrial economy. So yeah, here in 2023, LA is still the largest urban oil field in the country with thousands of active oil wells. And I mean, we have a population of 10 million people that on a day-to-day basis, don't think about it, don't realize I didn't, but you go down La Cienega Boulevard and you can see those oil derricks pumping and you're reminded that Los Angeles is an oil town. This is an oil city. And that's why those oil derricks are one of the seven wonders of Los Angeles. Now, you know I'm not going to talk about the wonders of Los Angeles without mentioning my favorite. I've been talking about it for two years, nonstop. Well, at least since it reopened. But man, oh man, the Sixth Street Viaduct is, to me, the definition of urban beauty. This is a monument to our city, to its past, to its present, to its future. In 200 years, you're still going to be seeing these gorgeous photos of the the ribbon uh, side walls of the of the bridge. You're going to see that view into downtown. You see it from the side. You see it from the front. And when you're on it, oh gosh, this thing is stunning. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what a big deal this was. This bridge, Sixth Street Viaduct, that connects Boyle Heights and the, the real east side of Los Angeles to downtown, and and that in itself is important. It provides a conduit for for the people that are working, commuting into downtown to have a really not just an efficient route, but a gorgeous route. And I I can't stop talking about how much I love this. My wife, my son and I, we walk across this bridge. We drive this bridge. And obviously it helps that the areas on both sides are just really cool. But you get shots of the railroad, the river. I mean, this is Los Angeles. And they talk about infrastructure. This is infrastructure and why it's important. And it was such a big deal when it reopened. I think it was July 9th of 2022. 15,000 people came to celebrate this with Ozo Motley, LA's own Ozo Motley headlining. And the thing is, it had replaced the original 6th Street Viaduct, which also was photogenic. And people, Stefan Oriol used to shoot all kinds of photos on the bridge, under the bridge. There's lowriders, there was uh, drag racing. I mean, like, it was a really notable LA place. So you're going to rebuild and replace this monument, you better come up with something amazing. And they did. And it also cost $588 million, the most expensive bridge project in LA history. But first, I want to talk about the original because it is important, especially in LA. You know, we're always city of the future, demolishing our past to build toward our future. So the original 6th Street Viaduct was built in 1932, connecting the Arch District to Boyle Heights. And it was 3,500 feet long, 46 feet wide. It spanned the L.A. River, eventually the Santa Ana Freeway, Golden State Freeway, and 18 railroad tracks, which it still does. And during the construction of the original viaduct, an on-site plant was built to supply the concrete for the construction. But here was the problem. 
is the quality of that concrete turned out to have a high alkali content, they say. And what happened were that estimates stated with the modern technology that the viaduct had a 70% probability of collapse due to a major earthquake. We don't like to hear it. We don't like to talk about it, but we live in on the ring of fire and there's earthquakes and there's going to be earthquakes. So they had to proactively demolish the bridge to rebuild it. But it's worth noting. You want to see the old bridge. It had such an appeal to filmmakers, to photographers, videos. It was grace and grit in the same shot. Cameo appearances in 80 videos, 100 shows. It was in Greece. It was in Terminator 2. So how do you replace something that iconic? Well, the new bridge, the goal was for it to be a place more than just a place for cars. It was meant to be for people walking, for bikes. The new one has bike lanes, a separate pedestrian lane. I told you, my wife's son and I walk on this day. It's so awesome. And it has two helix-shaped stairwells at the midpoint that lead 60 feet down because they're going to build a park under that. Now they're working on it. I haven't seen it yet. And those those sides that I couldn't find the, find the words for, it's columns and arches that provide what's called a ribbon of light. And sometimes they light those up. And oh my gosh, talk about amazing. Talk about just beautiful. And it really is meant to be people friendly. I mean, again, the bike lanes, the pedestrian lane, the ramps. And Eric Garcetti at the time said, it's not just a connection between our communities. It's a new landmark that represents the tenacity, beauty, and promise that defines Los Angeles. Man, again, I, I get chills because it really does. And now I got to talk about something because the first month that the bridge was open, it was celebrated and people loved it. But it was also denigrated as a playground because there was some mayhem. There was some lawlessness. There was some pretty insane activity. Okay. People were drag racing, doing donuts, leaving their physical mark on the bridge, which I don't love, but it's L.A. We were celebrating, man. And, you know, there was a quinceanera or there were photos for quinceanera. There was a dude giving out haircuts. There were people skating up and down those ribbons and walking up there. That's, in my opinion, crazy. But y'all extreme sports people like kudos I respect it, but be careful. But people were kind of going nuts. But guess what? This was a love letter to Los Angeles, and people were loving this bridge. Maybe a little bit, a little bit too much. So the cops had to come in, the city come down. They they closed it permanently a couple nights, which I think sent the right message. There were citations, there were impounds, there was graffiti removal. But you know what? Now people are accustomed to it. And they love it and they appreciate it. And the best thing I see when I'm out there is people are out there with us. There's vendors, there's food, there's music, there's people celebrating this bridge. And it really is one of the most eye-catching, eye-popping places in all of Los Angeles. And that's why this is one of the seven wonders of L.A. Next up, another favorite of mine. This is a house. Just a simple house, a residence, which happens to be the oldest residence in Los Angeles. And what it represents and what it is, is why this 
is a wonder of L.A. I'm talking about the Avila Adobe right there in the heart of Alvera Street. Now, you've heard me talk about Alvera Street. I always kind of have the, there, there's the uh, paradox dichotomy. I don't know the right word, juxtaposition. Alvera Street, went there as a kid on field trips, white kid from the valley, and I'd see all these tchotchkes and people selling stuff, and I'd be like, oh, okay, it's a place where, where you buy, like, little, little toys, little trinkets, and take tourists. But I didn't really, really realize that Alvera Street is the heart and the birthplace of Los Angeles and where so much took place. But I want to single out the Avila Adobe because, again, being the oldest residents in Los Angeles, you think about this, what L.A. was from indigenous times to even the, the Pobladores in 1781, 44 families to what it's become. Well, you have to have that foundation. That foundation for people living here is the, the first, the oldest place where, where people live, the oldest still standing residents. So this is the Avila Adobe right in the heart of Alvera Street. And it was built by Don Francisco Avila, who was a wealthy cattle rancher and during Mexican rule of Los Angeles was the one-time alcalde, which is essentially the mayor. Now, Avila was born in Sinaloa, 1772, and he moved to L.A. in 1794. Keep in mind, the pobladores came El Pueblo, 1781. So he was there just 13 years after the city of Los Angeles was founded. And again, Los Angeles is a Mexican city. And I think that the fact that he was born in Sinaloa, a city of immigrants, a city of transplants, is very important for why this is a, a wonder. And Avila was, became a cattle rancher and he got some wealth. And so he owned 44 acres of Rancho Los Cienagas, which included the land that stretched all the way from what we now know as the La Brea Tar Pits, which is where they ended up getting the tar for the roof. Of the adobe. Now, at the time, then this is a little sidebar. They didn't know La Brea tar pits had fossils in and stuff, but it was a nice source of tar. And I just think tying that in to the actual adobe, to the actual building, is part of what makes this a wonder. It's so Los Angeles because the La Brea tar pits are so um, historical and important. And yo, check this out. The roof of the adobe was made from the tar there before they even knew what it was. So I kind of love that. And the walls of the adobe are three foot thick built from sun-baked sun adobe bricks. And the original ceilings were 15 feet high and supported by beams of cottonwood. Cottonwood, by the way, a native tree along the banks of the L.A. River. So I love this. This is a real L.A. home and L.A. residence. And it is really cool to kind of be inside also. Like, there's the bedroom and the living area and the living quarters. And you see all this kind of stuff, and it really is... Man, this is what frontier life in Los Angeles was during the developing Los Angeles. So it's really important because it's living history and we're walking by. I'm out there on Alvera Street going to El Cielito Lindo to get my taquitos, going there, taking my son, looks, pointing out the San Madre. But yo, this is the oldest residence and it's right there. And we don't often think about it in that context, right? So. Another really cool thing about it is there's there was a garden and there's a vineyard in the rear courtyard. Now, why bring that up? Is that vineyard, which is still active, still makes grapes, is the oldest vineyard in all of California. 
Now, it comes from, uh, what is it called, a seedling or, or, or uh, when you cut a cutting of the original grapes that were planted by the Franciscan uh, friars, the missionaries in San Gabriel. But those grapes ended up being victim of a plague and Avila planted them at his adobe. And now not only does he have the oldest residence, he has the oldest grapevines in all of Los Angeles and all of California, which is significant because Los Angeles was the city of grapes. Los Angeles, I told you LA was a, was a wine, uh, was an oil town. Los Angeles was also a wine town. At the late 19th century, early 20th century, Los Angeles was producing more wine than Northern California, than Napa, all this kind of stuff. So think about that. The Villa Adobe, not just the oldest residents, the oldest grapevines in what was one, initially one of LA's main exports, main crops. Very, very important. Now, what ended up happening, and Avila was elected mayor of Los Angeles. He was a big deal, even as a city, and he was revered, and Alvera Street started growing and developing. But over time, Alvera Street fell into neglect, and so did the home. He passed away. The home was rented to different people. It was used as a hotel, housing, lodging, a temporary home for U.S. troops. And there was a period in the 1910s when it was left vacant, unattended and it became neglected and by 1928 the city wanted to demolish it and it was saved by christine sterling known as the mother of alvera street who saw the home as a historical site and she didn't want the authentic authenticity of the home to be destroyed again because even then it was still the first home still standing built in los angeles so she stopped the city from demolishing the home. She got some philanthropical backing and they transformed it into a museum as they developed Alvada Street. And so even as other people kind of disregarded it, thank you, Christine Sterling, to establish that movement to save Alvera Street and as such, the Avila Adobe. And that, the oldest residence in a city that has developed faster than any city on the planet, Los Angeles, the Avila Adobe, is the sixth wonder of Los Angeles. So you heard about our sponsor today at the top of the show, McKenna Cars. Let me tell you the McKenna Cars story. Check this out. In 1949, when 16-year-old Mike McKenna was arrested for streetcar racing in South Boston, the judge gave him two options, serve time or serve his country. Well, he chose the latter and he joined the Marines. He was sent across the country to Camp Pendleton, where he met Bob Stevens, who would become his new best friend. When Mike and Bob left the service, they moved to L.A., where Bob's father-in-law, who was a retired German doctor, was given one of the first Volkswagen dealerships in Los Angeles. He asked the boys to join him in the biz, and they jumped at the chance. And the VW Beetle gained in popularity. And while that happened, Mike McKenna learned to treat his customers with respect and support. And when Porsche was offered a few years later, they welcomed the new brand by expanding their sales and service departments. Now Mike's son, Danny McKenna, he took over the Volkswagen Porsche operation when his dad moved to Hawaii. But they shared nine Volkswagen stores and three Porsche stores in California and Hawaii. Now Danny and his kids manage Volkswagen dealerships in both Huntington Beach and Cerritos, plus the McKenna Porsche and McKenna Audi in Norwalk. They invite you to visit McKennaCars.com. And see how easy it is to lease or purchase a new Volkswagen or Porsche. After 70 years in business, 
you'll experience a team that's firing on all cylinders. That's McKenna. McKennaCars.com. All roads lead to McKenna. Dun-dun-dun-dun. The seventh wonder of L.A. Oh, man. This was one of my favorite developed. One of his favorite discoveries of mine. I didn't discover it, of course, but that that I hadn't seen previously. In all my travels and experiences and explorations with LA in a minute, Sunken City in San Pedro was my favorite thing that I've never heard of and never seen. And it deserves to be a wonder of Los Angeles because it represents so much the what could have been what was the beaches, the coast. So point for me and park in San Pedro. Another awesome excuse to go to a great, great part of Los Angeles. Go to San Pedro. I can't say it enough. So many good places. Places to eat. Historic little Italy. The port. Korean friendship. Bell. I can't, I can't talk about San Pedro enough. Just a great place. And right there in point for me and park sits the sunken city. Which, again, I've been to Rome. I've been to China. They're ruins. And that always kind of blows my mind when you see ancient ruins. Like, wow, you know, like this used to be blah, blah, history. But there are ruins right here in Los Angeles. And you walk in this area. And by the way, I got to say this. You're not supposed to go there. You're not allowed to go there. I didn't tell you to go there. But it's pretty accessible if you want to. If somebody else tells you to go there, just know that it's pretty accessible. Um, you call, crawl, hop over a little fence, a small fence, go through a hole in another fence. Boom. You're there, but it is cliffside and it can be dangerous. So be safe. But what you're seeing are, are the ruins, these old cement foundations, cracked sidewalks, kind of holes, uh, uneven ground. But what are these ruins of? Well, these ruins right there overlooking the beautiful Pacific Ocean in San Pedro are the ruins of a community. It was a development created by a landowner named George Peck who built some bungalows on six acres of land with fabulous views. It's the top of a bluff. I mean, this thing, think Palos Verdes, think Malibu, most beautiful vistas in Los Angeles. This is that. This is in San Pedro. And he developed these little bungalows in this area and they were served by a red car. The famous railways of Los Angeles, also former mass transit capital of the world. That's a different episode. Great one. But the red cars that take you right up to this little community. This is the 1920s and homeowners moved in and people loved it. And they were enjoying this area right next to the port hustle and bustle of business. But on January 2nd, 1929, people started noticing earth movement in that area, Point Fermine, and under these bungalows. And between January and May, the ground had moved eight inches laterally and it dropped three inches. Now think about that. Those aren't huge numbers, but when you're talking about the foundation of a house, that's a massive number. And engineers were alarmed, especially as the ground kept moving and even faster. There were gas leaks, water line breaks, 
and homeowners started moving out. Not everybody was initially impacted, but people were like, yo, I can't live here. Like this wasn't just, this is like a slow earthquake landslide. There's something similar going on right now in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes, right? Homes are kind of sliding off the foundation. It's crazy. And by August, so three months after the initial movement, it now became a full-on landslide with the earth of these cute bungalows right on the San Pedro cliffside moving towards the ocean at three inches per day and large crevices feet wide formed. And homeowners that were behind the rock slide area, they actually got these homes up on, on trucks and, and pulleys and stuff and they moved their houses back behind the slide area and they roped off the rest of the area. And some homes were already just couldn't be salvaged, right? And, man, William Mulholland, that name comes up again, 1929, still, still relishing in his fame and glory from being the man who made Los Angeles with the water. He was retired, but he was called in to look at the landslide, and he said that devastation was just as inevitable as the freckles on a small boy's nose. But he said that the land, even though it was unstable, would probably not fall into the sea. Well, he was right and he was wrong because the land, not all of it fell into the sea, but some of the homes did, the sidewalks, not, not with people. And it wasn't one of these things undernight, but all that remained of that land are these concrete bases and these foundations. And it's so eerie to look at and beautiful in this majestic kind of, you know, the earth mother nature always remains undefeated kind of way that you see these stones and you, you envision like what was, and you're like, yeah, this is a great place for a house. You know, some rich people be living out on this. Yeah. And that's what they thought till those homes fell into the house. And why did it happen? Why did it happen? Well, the waves below the bluff weaken the structural integrity of the ground, but there's waves everywhere. And there's not always landslides, California, but that ground right in that area point for me was, contained a clay called bentonite and bentonite was formed from the compression of volcanic ash. And you, you think, I don't know if you've ever held like, um, volcanic rocks. They're, they're very light. They feel very kind of, kind of weak, I guess. feels like you could crush them. Now that's kind of what that ground was, was made out of. And with more water, more rainfall, more development and weight and pressure, the land became unstable and thus it started falling into the sea. Now, in the 1980s, Sunken City, as it became called, was where people would go to party, drinking, bonfires, gang activity, vandalism, late night noise. And the L.A. City Council in 1987 built an eight foot high wrought iron fence to cut down on interlopers. And they... Thought that would prevent people from going in. But as I mentioned, even though you didn't hear from me, it's still pretty accessible. And this is one thing that will stop you in your tracks, and it's worth the trip. And that is why the sunken city in San Pedro is the seventh wonder of Los Angeles. Well, as for what to do in L.A. this week, I gave you enough for seven weeks, and they're all free. That's right, free. So go enjoy the seven wonders of LA, my friends, and create your own. There are a hundred places that could have made this list, 
Just so proud to live here and enjoy these wonders every day. So thank you for listening to episode 42 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Thank you to everybody for joining me on this wondrous journey around our beloved city. If you like the podcast, don't forget, follow, subscribe, give that five-star rating. And if you love it, please leave a review. It is super helpful as we continue our march up the charts. Thank you again for supporting In a Minute with Evan Lovett. And I wish you all a great week filled with wonders. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.